The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. There are so many challenges involved in the college process, including choosing the right college, planning a payment strategy, creating a high school plan, and much more. The team of experts from College Coach are here to help you find some, if not all, of the answers you need. Now, here is your host, Elizabeth Heaton. Good afternoon and welcome to today's show. It's August 11th, 2016. My name is Ian Fisher, and I'm very glad to be with you today. Uh, We're gearing up for a really hot weekend out in Portland, Oregon. Looks like we're going to have a couple days in the 90s, and I know that the rest of the country is experiencing a bit of a heat wave as well, so I hope you can stay cool wherever you are. A lot of my students are also telling me that school starts either this week or next, and I'm just so surprised that it's back to school already. Did we really start that early back when I was in school? I don't quite remember. Anyway, we've got a great show lined up for you today with the continuation of our Schools Out application workshop series, some advice on how to live like a college student, and an entire segment where we'll be answering listener questions. Last week, Beth Heaton and Kara Courtois talked about the additional information section of the Common App when they uh, touched on the Schools Out series, and they gave an assignment for students to start thinking about how to get organized with their applications. I'd recommend dipping into the archives for that segment from last week when you have the chance, as there are some really great suggestions about building an organizational spreadsheet to help you keep track of dates and deadlines, essay requirements, ED policies, testing requirements, etc. Today, we want to tackle a whole new beast, which is the process of applying for scholarships. So we're going to open up our office hours and welcome Beth Feinberg-Keenan, longtime friend of the show and college coach financial aid expert. Welcome, Beth. Thanks, Ian. So I work on the admission side at College Coach. You work on the finance side. And I think that that almost that has no difference in what people are asking when they ask about scholarships. I get this question probably as much as I get any other admissions question, which is, how do I find scholarships to help pay for college? And when should people, especially seniors, as they're starting to, to gear up for the college application season, when should they really start looking for scholarships? Um, how's the answer of yesterday? Yesterday. Okay. Wednesday. <laughs> yesterday. <laughs> okay. So, okay, good, good. So what, where are they looking and, and how, you know, how do they go about sort of finding the, the right resources for them? So I think, you know, looking for outside scholarships, there's so many different avenues that students and their families can really explore when looking for these opportunities. Uh, whether they're looking at, for them on the national level, uh, the local level, um, you know, even, you know, you know, odd, you know, odd scholarships that we did we did a segment on uh, a few weeks ago. But right. the first place that I often direct students to is a couple uh, scholarship search engines, so they can look at uh, the College Board has a search engine on their website, which is bigfuture.org, and just plug in information about the student. And ultimately, what they're doing is is they're going to be getting a list of 
potential scholarships that they have to do a little bit more research in looking at what makes most sense and fits, fits most closely to the student. The other website that I also like and my friends like it, um, College Coach, is a website called scholarships.com. And there are so many different search engines out there. And so there might be other search engines that your high school is telling you about. There might be other search engines that you've heard of, other family friends have used. You might find on the college's websites that you're applying to. But these are the two websites, the College Board and Scholarships.com, are the two sites that we have found that you're going to get probably some of the better, better results from mm-hmm. looking at, you know, looking for scholarships that fit closest to, to who you are. But again, so, keep in mind that students are doing this everywhere. I mean, Students right. are doing this, like in your classroom. As students are doing this in your state, across the entire United States. It's it's tough. I mean, competition out there is fierce. That's why I said, you know, Ian, when you asked about when should we be doing this, yesterday. You don't want to delay because so many students are looking for scholarship opportunities that there's so much competition out there. Now, is the is the timeline that you're giving is that more because um, of the work that's required to apply for scholarships or because deadlines for scholarships tend to be coming up really soon? I think both. Okay. Um, I think that often, you know, families think back to, you know, applying for scholarships, it was just an application, they just have to fill that out, submit it for a scholarship. That's right. not always the case. A lot of scholarships might have other criteria. Remember a couple of years back I was speaking to a family and the student was looking for scholarships and she was a senior in high school and some of them had some community service-based requirements. And they asked for 75 hours, 100 hours. They asked for a certain number of hours. And the family said, if we knew this sooner, she would have met that. Wow. So now as a senior, she couldn't necessarily go back and change what she's already done. And she had a limited amount of time that she wasn't necessarily going to be able to get the hours in before the applications were due. So that's mm. why the sooner the better in terms of knowing what the scholarships are looking for in their applicants, what's required of the applicant? Is it an essay? Is it just the application? Is it a recommendation? And then also, you, know, you want to make sure that you're not missing the deadlines. I think the hardest questions that I often get is families who come to me in May, uh, April, uh, even June. All right, we've, we know where we're going to school. Where do we look for scholarships now? Right. And you're like, wow, we're really not looking for them right now for your this year of college, you're really going to start looking now for your next for couple years of college. Year. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I pointed to the scholarships.com website and it's, you know, 3.7 million scholarships worth around $19 yeah. billion. And they say, search our scholarship directory. So what are the kinds of things that students maybe need to be looking for when they're searching in that directory? Are they looking more for dollar value? Are they looking for characteristics that they identify with? How do you make sense of all of the different scholarships that are out there? So, when they're looking at the different scholarships, first and foremost is looking at do I meet the criteria that they're looking, you know, that they're looking for. So I think, in, you know, I think in the beginning, you're right. You see, you know, 3.7 you know million scholarships out there, and you're like, wow, that's an awful lot of scholarships. I have to go through all of those. That's why you're filling out the the survey to do that, you know, as your initial step. You're putting things in about yourself academically. You're putting things in about your, your, your background, you know, extracurricular activities um, in terms of potentially ethnicity, religion, um, 
academic information. So you're narrowing down that 3.7 million to a smaller group, a smaller subset of scholarships that are going to potentially be scholarships that you're going to be able to go through more easily and pick out ones that are a better match for you. One thing that I often tell families when they're looking for scholarships is some of them are going to have a need-based component that they're going to say that you have to be eligible for need-based financial assistance. If you know you're not going to qualify for need-based financial aid at the colleges that you're applying to, it's likely that you're not going to necessarily qualify for need-based for a need-based scholarship. So weed those out. But in the search engine, you don't have that option to necessarily weed those out in the beginning. So it might be looking at the scholarships mm-hmm. and as you're going through them and saying that these are ones I'm not going to spend time applying for, and I'm going to focus on other scholarships, which might actually, you know, which I might actually get awarded. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, even in the the sort of, when you do a, a search, they're asking info about your academic background, about your artistic and athletic information, mm-hmm. demographic information. So, you know, I think that that's a really smart way to sort of weed all these things out. And, you know, it can seem a little bit daunting when you see 3.7 million scholarships, you have no idea where exactly you're going to begin. But I think that, you know, these databases are there to help match up money and people have established scholarship funds because they want to provide funding for students who are going to college, right? Um, Now, is money sort of worth the same no matter where it is that you choose to go to college? Uh, You know, if I, is there any reason for me to hesitate on applying for a particular scholarship through one of these platforms because of where I think I might attend or is money always worth the same if it comes from these outside parties? I I guess when you're looking at, you know, how will it impact what you're getting from the colleges? If you're in a position where you are going to have eligibility for need-based financial assistance, you want to make sure that you understand what the college's outside scholarship policy is of the colleges that you're applying to. Hmm. So you can kind of look at this at two levels. I mean, the first, you know, the first way is, you know, if you're not going to qualify for need-based financial assistance, then by all means, apply for scholarships because any dollar amount of scholarships that you can bring in is going to ultimately help reduce down the cost of the college that you're attending. If you're applying to colleges where you will qualify for need-based financial assistance, you want to make sure, and it's important to, you know, important to understand what the outside scholarship policy is at those colleges, and, you know, the colleges that you might get accepted to. You don't want outside scholarships to affect the financial aid that you've been offered. Um, some mm-hmm. schools aren't able to meet your full need these outside scholarships can go in and they can fill the gap that's not being met by the financial aid. Uh, some schools will replace uh, student loans with outside scholarships. And the last thing that they're going to touch is any type of need-based grant funds. And so that's the free money that you may see as part of your financial aid package. So if you're in a position where you'll qualify for need-based financial aid, make sure that you're researching outside scholarship policies you know, first and foremost. Um, because you don't want to find out that you've done all of this work, you're getting these scholarships, you get this great financial aid package, and then all of a sudden you let the school know that you've been able to win $1,000, $2,000 in outside scholarships, and they come back to you and say, well, now here's your revised award. And you're like, wait, I just spent all this time doing all this work. Mm-hmm. What do you mean I'm losing aid? We still have to cover a balance. Why can't this money be used to cover that balance? Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So it's a matter of really looking at the school's policies and and understanding how a scholarship might be absorbed by financial aid uh, that that you're getting at a particular institution. 
Exactly. And it's really good. You know, it really is only going to affect need-based financial assistance, any scholarships that are not based upon the family's ability to pay. Um, so any money that's awarded based upon the students, solely based on, student, based on the students' academics or athletic talents, or artistic talents, something that's not based upon the family's financial information, it's not mm-hmm. going to affect those or it shouldn't affect those, those monies that are offered to the student. Gotcha. Now, I think whenever we start having these conversations around money and scholarships and financial aid and EFC and need-based aid, automatically I think that students start to tune out a little bit and parents' ears perk up a little bit more. But the students are the ones that have to do the work on this kind of stuff if they want to apply for a scholarship, and they should be aware of of this cost. And you had mentioned to me in an email that you really should try and make this fun, this process of, of searching for scholarships, right? And, and make it something that a student's going to enjoy doing as much as they possibly can. What are your, some of your tips for helping students to make this a little bit more interesting and engaging or as much as it can be? So this actually came from a parent, I think, early on when I started at College Coach, that I had a parent tell me that, you know, you don't want your child to be the one who says, why am I the only one who has to look for scholarships? All of my friends are not doing this. They don't have to sit home on an evening to do this. So why are you making me do this? Well, number one, they're making right. you do this because you as a parent don't want to pay the full sticker price. It's a lot of and money. you want yeah. to find avenues or you want your child to be invested in helping find avenues to cut down the cost. Yes. So how do you make this fun? Have your kids' friends over. Um, set, up the, set up the kitchen table have them bring laptops if you have a, you know, have a computer at home, and they're all sitting around the table doing this. You provide the snacks, so they're having, they have snacks, and the kids can be doing this together. They, have, they can have, be having a conversation. They can be having fun. They can also be looking for scholarships from one another. So it's not right. just your child sitting there by themselves you know, at the table when they think their friends are out having fun. But you're getting together with, you know, maybe a couple of the parents you have over also, but it's more or less you have their friends over, and they're all doing the same thing. And hopefully by the time they leave that evening or the couple hours they spend, at least they'll be able to walk away with a list of scholarships that they can apply for, or depending on where they're in the process, maybe they've already put together that list, and they can leave that evening applying for one or two scholarships when they go home that night. And your, your, your child wasn't doing this alone, but they were doing it in the basically company of their friends. And so they were doing this as a team, and you're making it a little bit more fun and enjoyable for them and not just sitting there and saying, oh, poor me, I'm the one who has to stay home and do this tonight. Right, right. And I think that there is, you know, both in admissions and finance, I think that there's this misconception that you really need to do this all yourself and that you're giving away something if you share tips or collaborate with others uh, on part of this process. But, you know, just like students might say, hey, I went and visited Ithaca College last week and it wasn't really for me, but they had this great program that I think you'd be really interested in. You can do the same kind of thing with scholarships. And I think for students, it's not quite as intuitive with a scholarship, but by bringing students together, you can make it happen. And it might be a matter of, as a parent, making calls to other parents so that they can get their kids in the right. door because people aren't necessarily going to show up for that or, you know, ordering a big pizza and, and exactly. you know, bringing, bringing people over with their laptops. Exactly. And getting, yeah. I think it's a great exactly. idea. I really like that. And I loved it. I loved that, that 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 mom shared that with me. And I was like, that's great. And she's like, you know what? I was able to get my child on board and not have to hear the hemming and hoeing of, like, why me? But they're like, right. yeah, this is cool. I can have my friends over tonight, too. 
in addition to kind of making mom and dad happy also. Right. And I, you know, I've had parents ask me all the time, um, how do I get my kid excited about college or thinking about college when they're sophomores or juniors? And one of the things I tell them is that they'll start to feel excited about this once their, their friends start visiting colleges and talking about where they want to go, that there's this real momentum, you could call it peer pressure if you want, to <laughs> focus on these kinds of things and that that's going to be really useful for you as a parent. So um, I love that. And I think that you, you shouldn't be afraid as a parent to bring other people into that process. And, you know, it's competitive for scholarships, but there are, you know, on scholarships.com, 3.7 million different options. So uh, there's plenty of money out there, I think, for for all the students in the neighborhood to, to get together. <laughs> <laughs> and I have to steal one from your child just because you have a friend over. Exactly, exactly. Help everybody. Um, any other sort of tips that you might give on applying? Is, is there a difference in terms of essay writing for the scholarship essays versus, um, you know, college admissions essays from your point of view or, or any other sort of uh, random tips you might give? Well, I think one of the other, you know, from the essay point of view, again, I mean, essays, you want to make sure, again, that you're answering that question that mm-hmm. they're asking of you. But the other tips that I would probably also share with families is the scholarship search engines are that big gorilla in terms of in the room of where you're going to look for scholarship opportunities. But there are smaller, smaller animals you know, that you can also tackle looking for outside scholarships too. You can just do online searches, whatever search engine of your choice is, and look for scholarships based upon you know, your ethnicity, or you can look for scholarships based upon interest. I mean, you know, if you're a female and you want to study, you know, science or engineering, you know, looking for scholarships for women in science, women in engineering, women who want to study mechanical engineering, and just, you know, be as broad but be as specific in just doing online searches. But don't forget about also the community resources, too. Because you're, we're talking a lot about national um, national searches, you mm-hmm. also have, you may also have scholarship opportunities also in your, in your back door or your backyard where you could also look for scholarships. While the competition is still going to be there because your classmates, I mean, you have that competition, but you're not going to have as large of an applicant pool. So make sure that you're also looking at those opportunities and what resources you have in your own community to also explore outside scholarship opportunities on a smaller scale. And that's, that's a great segue to the assignments that you prepared this week for our parents and students. And you've got two different assignments, one for students and one for parents. Why don't you start with the, the student assignment? So for the students, I think that uh, students, especially for seniors, if you are heading back to school, because Ian mentioned, I know a lot of my friends um, who have kids down in the Florida, the Texas area, you're heading back to school this week. Make an appointment with your guidance counselor if you haven't already done so and make an appointment to find out about the local community-based scholarships and what the process is and how you're going to find out about those scholarships and if there's any type of application deadline. I can just share with you the high school I went to and I'm still very involved in their scholarship process. They award out over 600 scholarships, over a half a million dollars to graduating seniors. Pretty impressive at the local community-based level. Yeah, that's incredible. And, and what for about non-seniors... For Oh, for parents? Uh, for parents, yeah. uh, parents, I also want you to think um, with your own connections. Uh, parents, I want you to explore um, opportunities with your employer. Many times employers have scholarships for your dependents. So check with your benefits office or your internet uh, site to see about scholarship opportunities for your children. If you're involved in local civic community-based organizations, uh, check, with, check with those organizations. My dad was a Rotarian. 
I was lucky enough to get the Rotary Scholarship when I graduated from high school. My mom nice. was in the Women's Club. I got that scholarship, uh, Friends of Music. So look to see if there are local community-based scholarships based on activities that you do. And lastly, if your kids are looking at schools where you are an alumni of, check with your alumni association. Sometimes there's legacy scholarships. It might be $500, it might be $1,000, but who would, who would uh, pass up if somebody offered you $500? I'm sure everybody would take it. You know, That's right. You can do a lot with 500 bucks for sure. So get out there, use your connections, have a conversation, see what kind of scholarships are available. And we'll check back in later on uh, to see where you are on, on these assignments. Uh, great to have you on the show today, Beth. Thanks a lot for coming along. Thanks so much for having me, Ian. Have a great day. Of course. After the break, we're going to continue our office hours by answering your questions. Don't go anywhere. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Have you found the beauty inside of you? Join Bonnie Bonadeo each week for Beauty Inside and Out. We'll explain how beauty plays a part in everybody's lives. Our guests are makeup artists, hairdressers, and doctors. But we'll also feature holistic and wellness specialists and spiritual advisors. You can find that beauty inside and express it to its fullest on the outside. Tune in to Beauty Inside and Out every Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. listening to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. All right, we're just a few seconds away from answering your listener questions, and I want to get to as many as we possibly can today. But I also want to encourage you to send out your own questions, whether you fire us an email at gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com or just send us a message on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash collegecoach. We're delighted to help you make sense of your admissions and financial aid challenges. Uh, and if you're a Twitter user, you can also find us at collegecoachbh 
or you can find me at Ian Fisher CC. Uh, you can tweet at me or at College Coach, and we'll do our best to answer any questions that you have there on Twitter. Okay, let's get to the questions. Uh, my colleague Erica Braley is at our home office in Watertown with a list of listener questions. Uh, Erica, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you for having me. I have quite the list here for you. Awesome. Glad to hear it. Let's just start at the top and we'll go through as many as we can. Great. The first question is from listener Sandy. And Sandy asks, what are the chances of my kid's application being considered for an Ivy League if he has one C grade in his progress report? Will his application be outright rejected, irrespective of how well he does in all other subjects, extracurricular activities, clubs, etc.? Okay. Yeah. Good question. I get this question uh, fairly frequently because, you know, I think a lot of parents are looking at, is there some factor that automatically disqualifies a student from admission, whether it's to an Ivy League school or any other selective institution? Um, And, you know, I think what's really important is to understand that application review happens holistically. So when you're reading an application, you don't suddenly shut the file when you come to a C on the transcript, just like you don't shut the file when you're unimpressed with an essay. You want to see the entirety of a student's application from start to finish before you make a decision about whether that student can be admitted or not. Now, when we look at a C grade in a progress report, that makes things a little bit more challenging for the student to be able to to make up for on the other end. Um, There are probably plenty of students who are getting into Ivy's or Stanford, MIT without having Um, or or excuse me, with C's on their record. Um, But they're also making up for that with really compelling factors on the other side, whether they're competitive athletes or have won certain competitions or are real standouts within their community. So with respect to academic criteria like grades, testing, and coursework, everything that you have that is a step away from excellent is something that has to be made up for on the other end with respect to your extracurriculars, your clubs, and more. And so that's really the challenge. You're not going to be outright rejected because of that C, but that C does make it a lot harder to be considered for admission on the whole. And so that's why we always encourage students from the start of their freshman year all the way through to prioritize their grades and they're testing because those are things that are going to get them a seat at the table and then allow the additional content like essays, letters of recommendation, and extracurricular activities to help make up the gap and, and get them into those competitive positions for highly selective schools. Great. Um, our next two questions are um, both related um, and related to learning disabilities, so I'm going to ask them together. Okay. Um, The first question comes from Patty, and she says, how do you address disabilities such as ADHD and anxiety in essays? And then Shana's question is, our daughter has a significant learning disability. She does not want to address her struggles in our essays. Is there another way to let schools know she has been successful despite her struggles or a place to indicate she has a learning disability in another area of the application? Great question. And actually, I would refer um, both Shana and Patty back to the the radio show last week where Kara and Beth talked a little bit about the additional information section of the Common Application. And that's actually a section of the Common App that also appears on the UC application. And both of these are sort of a blank slate for students to be able to explain something about their pathway through high school that's a little bit unusual. And that's usually the place that students 
would report or self-report any kind of a learning difference, a learning disability, so that colleges are aware of it. Now, with respect to Patty's question, she asked about disabilities in essays. And, you know, I would say that you don't necessarily want to make the disability the focus of your essay unless you believe that that's the single most important thing to understanding who you are. Now, if you have other content that you want to share, passions, experiences, accomplishments that you've had, then feel free to share those as your essay. You don't need to necessarily make that about the disability because the additional information section allows you to provide that kind of content on its own. So, Use the essay to focus on sharing who you are as a person. If the disability is central to that, then it might be the subject of the essay. But more commonly, we're going to see that it shows up in the additional information section. Now, if we go to Shana's question, which is a little bit different, sort of talks about a student who doesn't want to address struggles in the essay. And, you know, I would say... First of all, I totally understand that. I've had a lot of students who don't want to share that kind of thing because they think that it makes them different from other applicants. But I would also say that it can be really valuable for college admissions offices to know that a student persisted in spite of disabilities or that a student was able to overcome significant challenges and has learned how to sort of solve a particular problem that they've had to manage uh, through their high school career. Now, if you don't want to share it at all in your essay or even in the additional information section, Another place that a disability might sort of come to the attention of admission officer would be in the guidance counselor's letter of recommendation. And in the counselor letter, that person can talk all about what a student has managed and maybe even share that the student, you know, doesn't want it to be a primary aspect of their application, but that it's important to understand who the student is. Now, fundamentally, there is one important thing that I want all students to understand if they have a learning difference or a learning disability of some kind, and that is that colleges aren't as interested in the fact that you have a learning disability as they are interested in the fact that you have coped or managed a learning disability. So I'm interested in how students have managed to solve the problems of having ADHD or anxiety or dyslexia much more than just the pure fact that they have that particular challenge. So whenever you're explaining something like this in your additional information section or you're having a counselor write about it, make sure that there's information about how you've worked to overcome it as opposed to just declaring it as um, an obstacle uh, to your academic achievement. Great. Um, our next questions are, again, somewhat related around SAT school scores and GPA um, requirements. I'll start with Jewel. Jewel asks, how stringent are the admissions requirements listed on the website of a college or university? Mm-hmm. For example, what they list for SAT scores or GPA requirements. So that's uh, an interesting question. So, you know, the the wording is, you know, how stringent are admissions requirements? And requirements are stringent. If if a college says you must be above this test score or this GPA in order to apply, then you have to be above that test score or that GPA in order to apply. One of the only systems that I can think of that has that kind of a strict requirement is the University of California system, at which you have to be above a 3.0 to apply if you're a resident or above a 3.4 to apply if you're a non-resident of the state of California. But a lot of students and parents misinterpret sort of the reporting of average test scores and GPA as requirements. And they're not actually requirements. What they are instead are sort of the average or the spectrum that students occupy in order to be admitted. 
So if you look at a particular school and it says the average GPA is 3.7, that by no means means that you have to have a 3.7 in order to be admitted to that school. Because an average, by definition, is sort of in the middle of the GPA. You're going to have students that are below 3.7 and you're going to have students that are above that 3.7. And usually it's going to be a fairly similar number of students that are on both sides of that number. So what I always encourage students to look at when they're trying to get a sense of how competitive they're going to be at a given school is the freshman class profile or the admitted student profile. Most schools report this on their website and they usually give information about the middle 50% range for testing and the middle 50% range for GPA. And what that tells you is among all students who got into that school last year, half of them who were right in the middle occupied a particular range, say from 3.4 to 3.8. And so if you see that as a student and you're between 3.4 and 3.8, that means that you look like a typical admitted student for that university based on GPA. If you're in the middle for testing, let's say it's somewhere between 1,200 and 1,300, then you're right in the middle. You look like a typical student for testing. And so that means that it's a school where you're sort of on target. You're not necessarily going to get in because you're in that spectrum. You also have to have really strong components in the holistic side of the admissions process, like essays, letters of recommendation, extracurricular involvement, and so forth. But at least is a good, quick way to get a sense for how competitive you're going to be for a school. If you're below the average, uh, below that middle 50% range, we would consider that school a reach. If you're above that middle 50% range, we would consider that school a safety. Now, the exception to this tool is highly, highly selective schools like the Ivies, like you know the sort of top 25 or so most selective institutions. They're going to have very high numbers across the board. Um, and whether you're in that middle 50% or above it isn't really an indication of whether it's a target, a safety, or a reach. Uh, most of those schools are going to be a reach for the vast majority of students. But for every other school, you know, the other 99% of colleges and universities out there, that middle 50% information is really, really useful as you build your college list this fall. Great. Um, The next question I told you is somewhat related. Um, It's from listener Alma, and Alma asks, my daughter attends an all-girls Catholic high school. It is non-ranking with a class of about 125. She has a 3.5 GPA, is hearing impaired, and not a great test taker. We have begun test preparations, but are not sure what to do if scores are not above a 12.50. Great. So, you know, here I think the question that comes back to the previous one from Jewel is, you know, not sure what to do if scores are not above 12.50. And, you know, what I would say is... Why do we think that 1250 is the score that we have to get to? Now, that might be because it's in the middle 50% for the schools that, um, you know, Alma's daughter wants to go to. Uh, Maybe it is a requirement, although very, very few schools have a testing cutoff of any kind. And, you know, they're able to make allowances for students that are otherwise really strong, compelling citizens who have a good GPA and maybe aren't the best test takers. Um, In fact, we're seeing more and more schools that are moving away from testing as a requirement for the admission process and moving into this test optional policy. Um, And so I would encourage Alma to look at some of the colleges out there that are test optional, which means that it is entirely up to the student whether she wants to report her test scores as a part of her application process or not. So test optional schools can be found at fairtest.org. That's F-A-I-R-T-E-S-T.org. And there they've got an entire list 
of schools that are test optional. Um, and that's a really great tool for students who are not good test takers or who have some challenges around testing. And then I think, Alma, that you know, I would also recommend thinking about how this hearing impairment can be shared with colleges as well. You know, you can, again, as we talked about with other learning disabilities, you can think about how to share that information with colleges in a useful way uh, so that we've got a clear sense of how that might have impacted her academic achievement. And there are a lot of colleges out there that really want to know this kind of information because it helps give context. Context is a hugely important word in admissions, but it helps to give context to a student's achievement, their scores, their GPA, and where they stand within their class. Excellent. Um, our next question comes from listener Sue Yoon. And um, Sue Yoon would like to know, would taking both the ACT and the SAT help to make me a stronger applicant? So the answer to that is, is really simple. The answer is no. Um, whether you have both the ACT and SAT or just one or the other is uh, makes no difference to colleges. You know, even if you have an extremely strong testing profile on both those two exams, having both isn't any stronger. So if we have student A who has a 36 on the ACT and student B who has a 36 on the ACT and a 1600 on the SAT, I would interpret those students as, as being completely even in terms of their testing. They both have perfect test scores. So there is not an expectation that you go out there and do more testing to prove that you're a good tester. If you can get a very high test score on one of the ACT or SAT, there's no incentive for you to take the other to show further consistency with that high testing profile. Suyin's question was a two-part question. Um, the, the second part of it is SAT selection advice. Uh, SAT2. SAT2 subject test. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of schools these days are requiring or strongly recommended SAT subject tests. And, you know, when you take SAT subject tests, the best time to do it is going to be at the end of the academic year where you've wrapped up an advanced class in that particular subject. So, for example, if you want to do the chemistry subject test, you would do that in the June following taking uh, the year that you took AP chemistry. Um, if you wanted to take math level two as a subject test, you would do that at some point after having completed honors pre-calculus because a lot of the content from honors pre-calc um, and up to honors pre-calc is included on math level two. As far as which SAT subject test you're going to take, you know, for most schools, it doesn't really matter, but there are some academic programs where certain subject tests are useful and even required. Um, I know of a lot of schools that do that have engineering programs where they want math level two plus either physics or chemistry, uh, depending on which one's more in alignment with the engineering discipline that you hope to study. So what I would do is I would consult the testing requirements for your list of schools. And, uh, you know, you want to do this a little bit early as a junior, maybe in the fall of your junior year, because those subject tests are something that you're going to want to take in the spring of your junior year. You want to figure out what those subject test requirements are going to be, or even recommendations are going to be, and plan your testing accordingly. That usually means carving out time in May or June of your junior year to take those subject tests um, and leaving that space to be able to do so. Great. Um, our next question is from Lawrence. And Lauren wants to know, which student has more of a chance to get in, a top five student in a normal high school or a top 20 student in a good high school? 
Okay, that's a that's a super complicated question. Um, <laughs> we've got we've got just a couple of minutes to answer it, but I think that you know the fundamental idea here is. Um, how much does school quality impact admissions? And, you know, it, it does have an impact, right? We want to know how challenging a school is going to be for a given student um, when they're applying to, to college. And, you know, it, we always measure students against the rigor that's available to them. So, you know, how challenging are the courses relative to courses that they could have taken? How good is their GPA or their rank relative to other students who are at the very top of their class? You know, all of that information is really, really useful. But I also, whenever I get a question like this, I like to turn it back on the parent and ask, you know, which of these two options do you want for your child? You know, do you want your child to be top five in what you might consider an average school or top 20 in what you would consider a good school? And I think that, you know, in general, we want our kids to go to good schools. And I would almost ask the same kind of question. Would you rather your student be, you know, in the top 5% of a local public or in the top 50% of an Ivy or another highly selective institution? And usually we're choosing sort of the best educational opportunity as opposed to the best ranking. But that's not always the case that that's going to be the better thing. So fundamentally, what you want to do is find a situation where your student is going to thrive. What are the settings that are going to enable your child to find their best um, and consider all of the offerings that a school has from sports to extracurricular activities to teachers, community. Um, you know, I think that looking at top five versus top 20, the relative value of the schools, you're sort of, you're playing a guessing game ultimately, but you can really get down to this idea of what the best fit for your kid is going to be by asking them where they feel the most comfortable, the most challenged, and most excited about, uh, you know, pursuing their high school opportunity. Um, and that's ultimately going to be the best place for them when it comes to college admissions as well. Um, Erica, thanks a lot for the questions. Um, that really went fast. <laughs> we didn't get through a whole lot, but thanks for asking them, and I really appreciate of it. Of course. Awesome. Uh, thank you also to you listeners who sent in those questions. Please keep it up. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking about how to live like a college student. So fire up that hot plate, pour in some ramen noodles, and come back after the break. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. If you're a parent of a high school student, you've probably heard a lot of scary stories about college admissions, about the growing number of applicants, the shrinking number of spots, about how even valedictorians are being turned away. For families of hopeful college students, it's impossible not to worry. But at College Coach, we take the worry out. Our advisors are former senior admissions and college finance officers from all over the country, so they can give you advice that nobody else can about what classes to take, how to prepare for standardized tests, what options are available to pay for college, and most importantly, what admissions officers are looking for when they read an application. We've got more than 15 years of experience and a track record that's helped every single student get into college, most into their top choice schools. So make the decision to come work with College Coach and start your child down the road to the decision that really matters, the one in the envelope that says yes. Visit www.getintocollege.com forward slash getting dash in. Tune in to the Patricia Raskin Show on voiceamerica.com every Monday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time. 
This is the program that helps you turn obstacles into opportunities, challenges into solutions, and find answers to tough questions with the award-winning powerhouse voice of radio, Patricia Raskin. So tune in and call in to The Patricia Raskin Show, Mondays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To reach Elizabeth Heaton or her guest today, please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Welcome back to the show. Uh, before we get to our next guest, I want to let all the listeners know that our, ne- our show next week will continue the Schools Out Application Workshop Series with my colleague, Sally Ganga. She's got uh, some great ideas in store to help move you through your application process, so make sure you tune in. I also want to note that many of the wonderful questions we get from listeners each week can be answered by diving back into our archive. So if we're not able to answer your questions on the show for any reason, you might be able to search through the archives uh, to find an answer to your question in one of our segments uh, from you know information about school-specific essays to dual-degree medical programs and essay brainstorming. There's a lot of really great stuff in there. Okay, my next guest is a regular on the show and a former financial aid officer at a number of institutions nationwide, and I understand she has some great advice for us today on how to stretch a buck. Uh, Tara Piantanita Kelly, welcome back to the program. Great, thank you. Nice to be back. Definitely. Now, next week, I think we're going to talk all about the financial transition to college, talk about some of the logistics of moving in and so forth, but this week, we want to talk about how to live like a college student. And I, you know, i got to ask, uh, what does it mean to live like a college student? Well, you, you mentioned ramen earlier. I think we all think of yeah. college students as ramen. So, I mean, if you want to just, you know, close your eyes and take a moment and think, okay, what does the typical college student look like? You know, uh, it, you know sharing pizza with roommates in a dorm room, eating ramen, of course. Uh, maybe skateboarding to class, maybe working a part-time job to cover the cost of used textbooks. You know, those are kind of some typical things that we think of when we think of college students. Um, but there is kind of a newer picture of some college students that that's, uh, you know, kind of making its way to the forefront. And, you know, these are the students that live in the, the brand new, you know, all-sweet residence hall with the fitness center on the ground floor and the pool out front. And it's okay. It, it costs $4,000 more per year to live in, but you can borrow that with your student loans, so why not, right? <laughs> so, um, when I was doing some consulting for a law school in uh, San Francisco, we used to tell the law students, look, if you live like a student now, you're going to, or if you live like a lawyer now, you're going to live like a student when you graduate. But if you live like a student now, you can live like a lawyer when you graduate. So, you know, make, make good choices, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that that, that makes sense. It's a, it's advice that you can think about, I think, at every stage in the process. But I think it's particularly important as students are getting out and becoming independent. And now they have to cover all these costs that they didn't have to before because they were going out to eat with their parents and they were covering laundry costs and, you know, helping mm-hmm. to buy books for them on Amazon or whatever. And, and now you're basically responsible for yourself as a student. How do you know? If you're spending too much or, you know, quote, living like a student, um, how do you analyze that? 
Well, there's there's a couple of good um, ways that we can do that, and I'll talk about that. But I wanted to point out, you make an excellent um, point that uh, oftentimes this is the student's first time they're living away and being responsible for their own things, and so it, it becomes a really good teachable moment <laughs> for parents to you know get in there and kind of t- tell them about budgeting and whatnot. But um, as far as as living like a student, um, believe it or not, you can ask a college how much it's going to cost. You know what what should my budget be? A, a college is going to give each student a, a budget, and it's going to be based on you know not just tuition and fees and books and supplies, but also you know a component for transportation to and from school, and you know personal mis- miscellaneous expenses like you know, deodorant, shampoo, laundry, and then uh, living expenses, whether it's either on campus in a dorm and eating in the cafeteria or off campus, um, or even living with family members, they'll give you a a budget for that. And students can receive aid, you know, including loans, um, up to their budget, but not beyond it. So Hmm. um, when I was a financial aid director, I would often have students come to me and they'd say, you know, I need more money. I I can't make it on the, the money that... That I have gotten, and uh, I would take a look, and, and they had received money all the way up to their, co- their cost of attendance, all the way up to their budget. And I would say, you know, what what is different with your situation that you know you're you're not able to to live within this budget? And some of them would say, you know, they've had legitimate excuses, like you know, uh, I, I have um, I'm doing my student teaching, and the I have to drive to the elementary school 40 miles away every day. Okay, so your transportation costs are higher. I totally get that. That makes sense. But, you know, right. I would have students that would just say, uh, I had one student come in and say, um, well, I-, I would ask her, you know, where are you living? Uh, I live in a one-bedroom apartment by myself because I don't like roommates. <laughs> well, okay. It's more <laughs> and, expensive. You know, yeah, and, and uh, you know, her shoes and, and her purse were brand name, much better than mine, and, and you know, so we weren't a value shopper. And uh, and I said, look, you you're... Near, you're not living like a student here. You're you're making lifestyle choices, and and you're borrowing student loans to fund those lifestyle choices. You, you need to you need to take a step back and and figure out what's important here. You're you're using loans to to fund uh you know a higher um, level of living than than you should as a student. Yeah, yeah, and I think one important thing here is that you can be really habit-forming at the beginning of your college career. You know, the things that you start to do as a freshman are things that you're going to continue to do as a sophomore, junior, and senior. And so if you don't live within your means or live like a student from the get-go, it's harder to pull back on the things that you've become accustomed to than it is for you to sort of stretch yourself a little bit more if there are additional expenses you want to take on. Um, now, what other things can students and parents do to manage their expenses or to give themselves an idea of what their budget really looks like? Um, gosh, there's there's all sorts of things they can do. Um, first, I would I would encourage parents before they send their kids off to college to help the kids establish their budget. So, you know, if if you say the school says, okay, your transportation component is this amount and your living expenses is this amount, um, you know, sit down with the kid and, and say, okay, you know, how are you going to live within this? Um, what does this look like? You know, if you if you rent the one-bedroom apartment by yourself, you're going to be way over budget. And then what's going to happen? You know, what are how are we going to stay within budget? So um, maybe sit down with the kid, talk about budget, and then, uh, you know, be there when the kid has questions. Um, 
Uh, another thing that I always, and this uh, just to let you know, I have a daughter who just graduated from college in May. Yay! But <laughs> Congratulations. One <of> the things, <laughs> thank you. So one of the things that I always told her is um, travel light as long as you can. You know, she wanted, her friends were, were buying cars, and she's like, should I buy a car? I'm like, you don't need a car payment. You're a college student. You, you know, I'm not going to buy you a car. <laughs> so, you know, you don't need a two, three, four $400 expense right now in your life. Travel light. And so, um, yeah, she made it through college with no car. And, uh, you know, she, she did okay. I said, keep your expenses low so, so that it gives you options. And, and so, you know, that, that's what she did, and it worked out. So, you know, keep teaching the kids to, to live frugally when they need to is, is a, a good thing. So but there's, gotcha. there's lots of things. Yeah, you mentioned you, you, know. you mentioned that there's a there are some good websites out there, right, that people can use to sort of keep track of their expenses. And that, you know, when I was building a budget, that's one of the places that I started was just, first of all, just seeing what I spent in a month as just sort of a baseline and categorizing different things and seeing where those exp- expenses were going and finding, oh, man, I'm spending way more on coffee than I should be. Um, or I'm eating <laughs> out, you know, I'm spending twice as much eating out as I do on groceries. Um, you know, what are maybe some tools that's students can have to track what their spending habits looks like. Oh, there's some excellent ones out there. Um, one of my favorites, it's just called mint.com. It's free. Um, you can set up a budget and uh, it, it'll track your spending. Um, so it'll, it'll really show you, like you said, you're like, oh, when you track your spending, you're like, I had no idea I was spending that much on right. coffee or something else. You know, I'm a tea drinker on tea. Um, so there's that one. Another one is called Nerd Wallet. I really like this one. It's more of an interactive site and it has like uh, data-driven tools and um, information so that it, you know students can make really solid decisions about um, money. And it also includes information on student credit cards, which I'm a big you know, opponent of. I think credit cards and students do not go hand in hand. They shouldn't. That's my own personal thing. Um, actually, what's another one? Oh, there's one called Practical Money Skills. And this is another online resource that's focused on like financial literacy and education, things like that. But yeah, there's some really great ones. And they're, you know, they're free. So why not use them? Yeah, I think that's, that's absolutely right. And, you know, the more help you can get, I mean, some people are more visual. And so, you know, maybe they can use a spreadsheet to get a sense of what everything looks like. I think some of these different websites provide graphs and charts and, you know, they're color coded. And I think that that can be really interesting as a way to come back and track what you're, what you're spending. Um, you know, if, if you just sort of pay and, and don't give any mind to it, you know, it might be in a position where you're not really recognizing the amount of money that you're spending. Um, what about different sort of things that maybe only students have ac- access to, you know, or, or that students should be thinking about things like discounts or the meal plan? Um, you know, are there, are there considerations that they should have around those student-only expenses or opportunities? Oh, oh. Yeah, absolutely. You know, um, when you go to the movies, oftentimes you'll see, you know, there's the matinee rate, there's the senior rate, and there's the student rate, you know. Uh, look for discounts for, at, at things like movies and, and travel things and, and museums. Um, and another thing to do is, you know, college campuses are just a hotbed for all things going on. And, and oftentimes those events are either free or very cheap. So, you know, there's a lot of things going on that, that you can do. But always, you know, when you're a student, always look for a student discount. And, and if they, if they don't advertise that they have one, ask. See, see, what, they, uh, see what they do. So, you know, that's, a, that's an excellent uh, way to save some money. And also when the students are traveling to and from home, um, like I think Amtrak has student discounts, um, you know, ask, ask about what kind of travel discounts you can have as well. 
and if mm-hmm. uh, you're lucky enough to, to be able to, you know, drive back and forth, uh, don't do it alone. Do a ride share so that, you know, someone else helps, you know, foot some of the bill on that. Or if you don't have a car, you know, ride along with someone else and offer to, to ship them for gas. So, that, you know, there's always ways that if you absolutely had to, you, you could figure out how to, how to save the money. Yeah, when I was going to school up here in Portland, I always flew back home for the breaks, but there was, from the airport, you can take the max to a bus to get back to campus. And, you know, that costs about two bucks, whereas a taxi or an Uber would be, you know, 20, 25 bucks. And so, you know, those are the kinds of things that they they seem like an inconvenience to some degree, but then you also get to spend some time, you know, alone and, and explore the city a little bit, and it can be really great. Now, we have about one minute left, but you had mentioned something about graduating on time as, as a way to optimize your money as well. Uh, anything you can say there in about 30 seconds? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, now, here's the thing. If you're getting a four-year degree, make sure you graduate in four years. <laughs> that you Perfect. Think that, that would be, you know... <laughs> It's like it's like a mystical thing to say, but no, it's possible. Absolutely, figure out uh, the number of credits that you need to take for your four-year degree. Divide it by eight semesters. Make sure you earn at least those that number of credits each semester, so that you can graduate. It's a no-brainer. Perfect. That's great, Tara. Thanks for joining us on the show, sharing your advice. Hope you can find a way to stay cool in the heat wave. Yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> well, great one. You too. Well, that just about wraps another episode of Getting In. I want to thank my guests, Beth Feinberg Keenan and Tara Pinantanita Kelly, for being superstars in the show today, and for Erica Braley for coming along to ask the listener questions. It's glad I'm glad to have everyone aboard. Next week we'll continue our schools out segment. The focus will be on essays and common essay mistakes. So make sure that you tune in to hear what Sally Ganga has to say about that. Um, we'll also be talking about athletic recruitment. And as I mentioned earlier, we'll be discussing the financial transition to college. From all of us at College Coach, have a great weekend. And good luck to you seniors who are returning to school next week. Can't believe it's mid-August already. Keep your heads down, power through. You'll be there in no time. See you next week. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton. Please join us again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.